Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who pretty much just constantly thinks about science. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today we're going to talk about transgender science fiction. Um, over the last few years, there's been a huge renaissance in science fiction about and by and featuring transgender people. I mean, and, it's really and a non-binary it's people. a naissance, right? It's, it's yeah. It's not, it's not like it's coming back into fashion. It's it's making its own new fashion. Yeah, it's really like a new kind of. It's a new wave, I would almost say. And so we're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about some of our favorite books and TV shows and movies, and uh, we're just going to get into why. Trans people have kind of arrived in science fiction. It's going to be all trans all the time. Yes. new wave start, Charlie? Where do you think that we started to first see stories about or by trans people really entering into the mainstream of science fiction? I mean, I think there was a bunch of things that happened. One thing that happened was uh, the Wachowski siblings, uh, the Wachowski sisters, transitioned. First, Lana Wachowski very publicly transitioned a few years ago. And uh, there also just started to be more trans characters showing up in comic books and novels and movies and just more awareness of trans people in general. I think it can coincided to some extent with stuff like Caitlyn Jenner transitioning and becoming a huge, big superstar meme and Laverne Cox being on Orange is the New Black. But also just a whole new wave of authors have come along in prose fiction in the last like few years. If you look at the Nebula and Hugo Ballet for the last year or two, you just suddenly see a ton of trans and non-binary people on the ballot, where previously there might be one or two of us occasionally. Like I was on the ballot, obviously, back in, I think, 2013 or 2012. Cheryl Morgan, who writes a lot of wonderful nonfiction about science fiction, was on won a Hugo like five years ago or so. But really in the last couple of years, there's been this explosion. And, you know, recently it's just it's kind of feels like it's kind of cresting. We're getting a trans character on the show Supergirl, who's played by an actual trans actor, uh, Nicole Maines. And actually, we've got a clip here of her talking to Variety about why it's so important for her character to be both trans and a superhero. I think most importantly, I want fans to take away an understanding of trans people, um, that we can be anybody, we can be whoever we want, we can do whatever we want, that we can be superheroes. Um, because in many ways we are. Yeah. And like, meanwhile, you know, my favorite TV show and yours, I think, is like Steven Universe right now. And the creator of that show, Rebecca Sugar, recently came out as non-binary and also said that Rebecca views the Crystal Gems as being non-binary. And I think that that was like that made a huge splash. And even though they're kind of identified as women and people use the female pronoun for them, they are non-binary heroes who kind of transcend gender in some ways because they're just light projections made form kind of. Yeah, they're they're rocks basically. <laughs> so so yeah, it makes sense that they would be non-binary. Yeah, and I think when Rebecca Sugar came out, she said that she was a female identified non-binary person. And so I think 
we're starting to see a whole range of identities that people can have. You don't have to change your pronoun to come out as non-binary. You can choose to be they, them. You can be one pronoun sometimes and one pronoun another times. We're all trying to figure it out. It's funny because science fiction has always had characters that transitioned their gender. When I first started reading science fiction when I was a kid, I was reading John Varley, whose novel Steel Beach is all about a a future society, a kind of a post-scarcity society where people just switch genders all the time. It's totally normal. We have Altered Carbon, which came out a while ago as a novel and is now a television series that's going to get a second season, where people can upload their brain into whatever body they want. So people switch all the time between different genders if they choose to. And, you know, you have, in general, I think the the trope of a post-scarcity world or a post-human world often involves easy gender transitions. Like you see this in Ian and Banks, you see it in Charlie Strauss's work. It's a bunch of cis dudes basically writing these stories about how in the future it won't matter if you have a penis or not because you can just glue one on, you know, you can just do some kind of, you know, tissue printout. I mean, I think it's interesting. The thing you mentioned about like 3D printing a penis or whatever is interesting because what you see in a lot of these stories of classic science fiction about like gender transformation is that they're very essentialist and that there's the assumption that a biological change will lead to a gender change and that the two are inseparable. The classic kind of gender swapping science fiction story is All You Zombies by Robert A. Heinlein, in which the character changes sex halfway through and it's just kind of an accident. It's not like the main character wants to transition from female to male. It just kind of happens because she gives birth and in the process of giving birth, she somehow gets a biological sex change. And I can't remember exactly how it happens, but it's very weird and doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it's mostly there in the surface of like a clever, clever time travel story. But the idea is that as soon as her body is changed, her identity will change with it and that she'll have no choice but to change her identity and become a man. And that's just what's going to happen. And like, of course, she's going to wake up in a body that looks male and decide, oh, well, now I'm a man and I'm going to use male name and pronouns. And that's just who I am. And And it's not going to change anything, right? It's just like, oh, well, now I'm just a guy. Well, it is. I think it is supposed to change, you know, but I think it's, it's supposed to be that her selfhood does change. But it's just that as a result of the biological transformation, her identity is immediately transformed. And I think that's you see that running through a lot of these classic sci-fi fantasies of gender transformation, where it's just like, of course, if your body was changed into a female body, if you were biologically male, but your body was changed into a female body, you would immediately identify as a woman and vice versa. And that your identity is basically just a product of your your biological sex and your your physical form. And that the hard part or the the complicated part is just finding some way to 3D print you a new (laughs) body that reflects the values of classic science fiction, which was created by cisgender people and by and large was reflecting this kind of essentialism that was kind of at the core of their worldview and has a lot to do with their kind of view of like the science fictional explorer encountering the other and the other is often not white male kind of and so essentialism really is at the core of their worldview in a lot of ways I think and when they try to imagine gender changes they come at it from a very essentialist framework they also come at it as you say from a kind of technical framework it's the question of oh well now that we have the technology what can we do with it oh we have this technology that allows us to remold our bodies And the thing that always 
bugged me later when I kind of returned to some of these books is that we see people switch gender and nothing, you know, nothing really changes. Like they don't suddenly like make less money or, you know, have to deal with like dudes grabbing their butts or anything like that. And partly that's because, again, these are all books set in the far future when, of course, we have no differences at all between genders, which begs the question of why anybody would want to switch genders if there was no difference between them, but whatever. So, or why they wouldn't like invent 14 new genders. (laughs) So I guess I wonder if you see, as transgender writers start writing about gender in science fiction, do you see a change? Like, do you see like a movement away from this kind of essentialism or a more nuanced view of what it means to change your sex? Well, first of all, I was just going to say that All You Zombie is the story that I was criticizing with its kind of very mechanistic gender transformation that happens, got turned into a movie called Predestination, which actually has a much more nuanced and kind of emotional storyline about this character who changes genders. And then as a newly male self goes back in time and falls in love with his previous female self. And I've actually got a beautiful clip of the two of them meeting for the first time and kind of like falling in love. You're not how I imagined you'd look. Do I know you? You're beautiful. Someone should have told you that. Well, you just did. So what's happening in this clip is that one of the versions of the person has transitioned. Basically, so it's a Heinlein story. And in the Heinlein story, it's just like a puzzle box. Like, how can somebody be their own mother and father? And the reason they can be their own mother and father is because they grew up to become a woman and then fell in love with their future self, who was a man, and had sex. And they had a baby who was them. And after having the baby, they were forced to transition their gender and become a man and go back in time and fall in love with their female self and father themselves as a baby. And so it's like a ridiculous... It's like, like the classic bootstrap time yeah, travel story. It's purely there just to like see how silly you can get with time travel and kind of be like, ooh, look, everything also is like... Also like amazing like female to male transition surgery. I Holy know. crap. Well, yeah. Like implanting like fully loaded testicles. <laughs> like <laughs> It's the future. <laughs> it's and the like, future. Yeah. And so for Heinlein, it's just a puzzle box. But then they, the Spirit Brothers made it into a movie in which they actually try to... Think about what that would be like emotionally to go back in time and meet your past self who is in a different gender and fall in love with your past self. And Sarah Snook, who plays the male and female versions of the character, is amazing and puts so much into it. And then later the character gets older and turns into Ethan Hawke and it's like, oh, whatever. (laughs) But, you know. The thing I love about that scene is that it's this kind of beautiful moment of self-care. Yeah. I feel like it's, I mean, let's set aside all the weird ooky stuff about like having sex with yourself, which actually is lovely. You should feel free to masturbate as much as you want, but there's still something kind of creepy about it in the film. But as like a psychological mechanism of your older self going back and meeting your younger self and saying like, actually, you're okay. That's a really, I, I love that idea. And I think that's something that's missing from a lot of stories about being trans is the in science fiction is that feeling of before the person transitions, like all of the uncertainty and doubt and self-loathing sometimes that the person is going through and how much they need someone to just sit down with them and be like, hey, you know, you're awesome. Go ahead and do what you want to do. You know, (laughs) get something tissue printed or whatever. Yeah. Get your 3D printed gender here. Go be yourself. But to go back to my earlier question about whether it 
changes things to have trans creators involved in this process of talking about gender transitions in science fiction. Do you see a change? I mean, because we've been talking about this Heinlein story a lot, which is still like cis dudes kind of telling the story. So what about when trans writers are in the mix and they're telling their own stories? How do you see those as being different? I mean, it's interesting because there have been trans creators in science fiction all along. We had Rachel Pollack, who I've been just reading a bunch of her stuff in preparation for this episode. And she was openly trans and writing science fiction back in the 80s. She was writing Doom Patrol, this comic book that Grant Morrison used to write. So awesome. She took over Doom Patrol from Grant Morrison and immediately added a trans character to the book. She also wrote a novel in 1988 called Unquenchable Fire, which won the Arthur C. Clarke Award. The novel takes place in Poughkeepsie, New York, and which is, I think, where she's from. Uh-huh. And it's all about, like, the horror of living in upstate New York and, <laughs> you know, the kind of stultifying, kind of stifling society there. And at the same time, it's it's very weird and warped. Rachel Pollack is a tarot expert who puts a lot of, like, weird symbolism and kind of bizarre imagery into her novels. And they're they're usually fantasy and they're kind of like very weird and out there. And at the same time, Unquenchable Fire is about a cis woman who becomes pregnant with like a magical pregnancy. And it is in some senses a little bit, in that novel at least, there's no kind of suggestion that there's anything other than the gender binary. Even with trans creators like Caitlin Kiernan, and Poppy Z. Bright really transitioned after his heyday as, as a horror writer. It's only recently that even with those creators that we've seen more exploration of openly trans themes and like questioning beyond the gender binary. One creator I want to mention really quickly who is super important in the history of science fiction, who doesn't get mentioned a lot as an important trans science fiction creator is Wendy Carlos who was a pioneer of the Moog synthesizer. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah, the Moog. <clears throat> the Moog. <laughs> she, you know, she was the daughter of Moog, just like Worf is the son of Moog. <laughs> she pioneered also, the Moog she's, synthesizer. she's part of this whole tradition. I feel like that electronic music is like ruled by trans people now. I guess like, so, yeah. So, like there's Sophie and like... Who is like my goddess or whatever. I don't even care. Pick a deity, pick a gender designation for that deity. Like she's all everything. But I mean, it's it's not just her. I mean, it's, you know, there's a ton of trans people in, in electronic music, I guess just because, you know, it's science fictional maybe or... I don't know. Tell us more about Wendy Carlos. She did Switched on Bach, which has a really silly name, but is an amazing album. It's basically like an album of Bach fugues done on the Moog synthesizer. And it's just so freaking cool. And people were listening to it constantly in the early 80s. Like, I feel like you could, like, when I was a kid, like, you would hear it everywhere. Like, at the roller skating rink where I was at, you know, a lot. That was a place I was was hanging out a lot. I wore out my vinyl copy of Switched on Bach. And then she also did the soundtracks for Clockwork Orange and Tron. And actually, here's a tiny bit of a snippet of her Tron theme. secret Tron subtext of trans identity. Like, maybe all of those programs were trans. You don't know. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe the world inside the computer, everybody was just switching gender all the time. And we just didn't see it, you know, because we just got the cisgender trons, tron, trans, tron. <laughs> I mean, what gender do those programs really have? I don't like, I, you know, no one asks. Nobody ever. Asks nobody them. asks. They're like, oh, I just assume you're a dude because you're a program. <laughs> you know, like nobody bothered to ask their pronouns. Yeah. So I think definitely there's definitely a trans subtext to tron. But, you know, I feel like in the last 10 years, there's been a little bit more conscious attempts. Caitlin Kiernan, I found an interview that she did in 2008 where she talks about being trans. And she says that as a trans person, she wants to write about what she calls the transmutation of flesh, which I found a super fascinating quote. And it's this idea that she's interested as a trans person in people whose bodies change state, people whose souls or inner lives are at variance with what their bodies suggest, people who are kind of at odds with their assigned gender or assigned identity. And later she wrote this novel that a lot of people talk about called The Drowning Girl, which came out in 2012 and I think won a bunch of awards. It won the Tiptree Award and the Bram Stoker Award. And I think it was nominated for a bunch of things where there's a trans character. And there's also just a lot of stuff about people whose bodies magically transform. You know, I think one of the characters, when they're underwater, transforms into kind of a sea serpent. It's really cool. And I feel like there's been more stuff like that. Like if you read these anthologies that came out in the last few years, there's been a series of anthologies called Transcendent that's basically like the year's best transgender speculative fiction. I've been lucky enough to be in it a couple of times. You know, reading those anthologies, which were edited by K.M. Spera, I think the first one, and then Bogi Takash, the second and third, there's a, a theme that keeps coming back of bodies that are kind of changing in ways that are not just the, what you'd think of with transgender people, but just in general kind of transforming, you know, mutating, and also doppelgangers and other selves and like kind of duplicates and versions of yourself that are outside yourself. It's like that scene from Predestination where the two versions of the same person meet. There's a lot of stories like that that are being told right now about like meeting another version of yourself that I think are really interesting. And I think that that's a thing that we're kind of working out right now in trans speculative fiction. That's so interesting. I was also thinking that there's just the plain old kind of inclusion happening in stories now, like uh, J.Y. Young who identifies as non-binary, their series, the Tensorate series, I think the third one just came out, have non-binary characters in them that use they and them as pronouns. And just that's it. It's like nothing special. I mean, it's special because the characters are awesome and they ride dragons and things like that. Or actually Naga, which is even cooler. If you if you want to ask me about like the hierarchy of like where Naga sit on the dragon scale, we can maybe do that in another episode. It's very important to me. One of the things that, you know, is really interesting about that is that I think with non-binary identity, we're seeing people experiment with new pronouns. So they and them is really just kind of one variation on many different kinds of pronouns that people are using to try to explain or represent what it feels like to not really be male or female, which is something that our language is not super good at and something that our culture hasn't thought a lot about. And so I think it makes to me perfect sense that science fiction is a place where we explore that first because it's a realm of of speculating, speculating about how culture and identity could be different. I wanted to ask you, Charlie, if you feel like your experience of being trans has affected your writing at all? Yeah, I mean, I think about this a lot, obviously. And, I bet you, you know, do. 
<laughs> you know? And I talk about this a lot. Yeah. When I was starting out as like an openly trans science fiction author, like 15, more than 15 years ago, I felt kind of isolated. I felt like I was alone and I felt like there wasn't a lot of other people out there. Like I met Cheryl Morgan. I had eventually met Roz Caveney, who, by the way, Roz Caveney has this like fantasy series called Rituals that's like really fascinating and awesome and has like trans characters, I think. Roz is one of the pioneers. Yeah, she's, she's definitely a pioneer. She's been out in trans for a really long time. Yeah, and she's been a huge part of the science fiction community as well. But I felt really isolated and alone. And I, I feel like I was trying to find ways to write about transness in science fiction like 15 years ago. And I think that part of what always fascinated me about it is that we are in some sense a product of science. There are things that I've been able to do to kind of modify myself to fit my gender identity that are only possible because of science. And at the same time, there is there is a kind of weird fantasy aspect to being trans, to kind of encountering your true version of yourself and entering into this kind of numinous, you know, dark forest <laughs> of uncertainty and like confusion. I'm never not going to be confused about what the hell I'm doing with myself. I'm never not going to be fearing that I'm doing it wrong or feeling as though I'm kind of making it up as I go. And I feel like that kind of leaches out into my fiction in a lot of different ways. I feel like even when I don't have characters who are openly trans, or who are openly, you know, questioning their gender, which does a lot of my characters do in one way or the other, I'm always kind of poking at that feeling of like, I have no idea what I'm doing or who I am or what all of this means. And I'm just kind of making it up as I go. And I feel like that's something that if you write about it in different ways, you can hit a lot of people because most of us, even if we're not trans, don't really know what the hell we're doing with ourselves, kind of. We're also given a ton of categories for our identities that turn out to be complete bullshit, right? Like you're told, okay, you have to go have a job. All right, now you're an engineer and that means certain things about you. Or you're going to be a grown up and that will mean certain things about you. And it all turns out to be just complete lies. Like your identity can change radically in all kinds of ways that don't fit these categories we've been given. And I think that that's something I see in your fiction. And maybe for you, that comes out of having witnessed with your own eyes your identity change and how people transform how they treat you and things like that. But I also think that it is relatable, as you said, because the process of growing older is finding out how many of these things that we think of as being really solid and dependable are totally up for grabs. I mean, right now as a nation, we're we're kind of coming to grips with the fact that the presidency is not what we thought it was. It can actually be a whole bunch of other things. We thought presidents would act a certain way, but nope, turns out they can just act a totally different way and they're still president. So that sense of, you know, disorientation, I think, hits us in all kinds of places. And gender is just one of the most fundamental ones. Yeah. And I think that it's it's good that in the middle of our sort of national identity crisis and our kind of collective meltdown about who we are as people, it's good that part of that is that we're we're kind of recognizing that gender is one of the things that we've created collectively that is bullshit. Um, I also wanted to mention, by the way, that like the last couple of years have seen a lot of really great stuff coming out by transmasculine authors. In particular, there's been like a flood of new works 
by transmasculine people. There's The Merry Spinster by Daniel Ortberg, which is a collection of retellings of fairy tales. There's Or Tomorrow or Forever by J.S. Kalfas, who's a non-binary transmasculine person. There's like literally everything written by Yoon Ha Lee, which yeah. are all amazing. <laughs> which often have like a thing of people being put into different bodies. And like the third book in his trilogy has somebody who has their 17-year-old consciousness put into their body as a much older person. And they're like, whoa, I was 17 a second ago. And now I'm like suddenly in the body of myself as like a much older person, which I think is fascinating. There's Jordy Rosenberg, whose book Confessions of the Fox has become a huge breakout hit this year and kind of features like weird alternate history. There's just been a lot of really interesting stuff, novels in the last couple of years, I feel like. And there's a ton of short stories coming out, too, from young writers who are identifying as non-binary and trans. Yeah. And if you look at those transcendent anthologies and like also there's like an anthology called Meanwhile Elsewhere that came out recently that's got a lot of trans writers in it. And if you just look at the list of short fiction finalists for the Hugo and Nebula for the last couple of years, you see a lot of these people, you know, turning up and it's really exciting. Yep. We're just turning all science fiction into trans everything (laughs) all trans everywhere (laughs) speaking of our collective identity freakout and our sort of collective national freakout over trans identity in particular the past like few weeks have seen like a really dramatic conversation around i think a brand new idea of like rapid onset gender dysphoria and i know that you read the paper and you've been kind of looking into that so What is this about and why is science suddenly having this debate over trans identity? What is happening in science? Um, So basically, a couple of weeks ago, um, a journal called PLOS One published a paper about something called rapid onset gender dysphoria by a sociologist named Lisa Littman uh, at Brown University. And it immediately generated a huge amount of pushback from the scientific community In it, uh, Littman defines what she says is a new kind of basically malady. Um, She's using terms like rapid onset because she's thinking of it as basically a kind of an illness. And she says that this is something that's afflicting cis girls, so people born uh, female, where they suddenly, due to peer pressure and exposure to social media, decide that they're trans. But maybe they're not really trans because maybe it's just a result of peer pressure or maybe it's because they have other trauma or they have depression or they have other things that are undiagnosed. And so the paper essentially suggests that when parents discover that their child suddenly identifies as trans, that maybe they're not really trans, maybe it's some other problem. Because if it ha- if it comes on suddenly, like this, this rapid onset idea, that maybe it's cause for skepticism. So the controversy, well, there's already the controversy of kind of claiming that. But then the real controversy came from the fact that the study was conducted in a way that is profoundly biased and unscientific. And PLOS One, uh, the the editors of the PLOS Journal have now said that they are going to retroactively uh, re-examine the paper and re-examine its assumptions. Brown University has said that they're no longer going to link to the paper and promote the paper while it's undergoing this, you know, post-publication examination. The reason it got published at all is that 
the ethos of PLOS One is that they will publish scientific papers that are technically correct and that and this paper is technically following the scientific method. However, I'm not sure how they got that because the Littman, the researcher, the way that she conducted her research to discover this new malady was by doing a survey monkey poll, which uh, survey monkey is just it's actually commonly used in social science research. It's just an anonymous polling software application that you can do online. Probably many of you have taken survey monkey polls of various types. And she created this poll asking parents about whether they had seen this sudden onset gender dysphoria. And she called for participants in this study. She only got about 250 participants. She posted about it on three different websites, all of which are aimed at parents who are questioning their child's gender identity, questioning their trans identity. So they're specifically sites geared toward parents who already reject the idea that their child is authentically trans. They think it's they think it's a phase. They think it's the kid is wrong. They think the kid is asking for attention. There's a variety of reasons why parents believe that their kids aren't really trans when the kids say that they are. And so she was this was this is a classic example of sample bias. You know, she was sampling from a group of people who already had this belief that their kids weren't really trans. And then she built this paper around the idea that there were all these kids who weren't really trans, uh, who were coming out as trans suddenly, uh, unexpectedly. And she made no effort to talk to trans kids or any of the kids who had been identified by their parents as having this malady. Uh, She made no effort to talk to parents who believe that their kids really are trans, just even as a kind of a control group. (laughs) Um, There was no control. Also, the entire survey was conducted anonymously online. So she had no way to even make sure that these were actual parents that were responding. I mean, we know for sure that there are a lot of anti-trans activists online, TERFs and other people like that, who would easily, who would have been very motivated to take this kind of survey and try to populate it with data that would back up their perspectives. Yeah. And also the part I don't get, isn't adolescence in general a period of rapid change and like change in gender expression generally? Like, you know, don't all teenagers change how they express their gender during adolescence? I know, right? Like, how come there's no paper on like rapid onset, you know, femininity? (laughs) Rapid onset gender conformity. Yeah, rapid onset. Because here's like one of the things that Littman talks about in the paper is that these are all kids who start watching videos about gender transition and then they decide, you know, nefariously that they're going to do it uh, because they think it's going to you know, make them happier or they think it'll get them acceptance. But the fact is that we know from looking at statistics on YouTube that some of the most popular videos are makeup tutorials on and um, fashion uh, video, you know, videos where people have a haul of like a ton of you know fashionable outfits that they've gotten and they try on. And these are primarily watched by teenage girls who are like learning about traditional femininity. And even though you see the exact kind of same kind of transition, like rapid onset of use of cosmetics, rapid onset of obsession over fashion, um, nobody's like freaking out about that and saying like, oh, but why aren't these, you know, former tomboys continuing with their tomboy ways? Like, why have they suddenly become so feminine? So I think 
part of the problem is that, yeah, I mean, she's identifying a typical feature of teenhood as being kind of pathological. Yeah. And like also it kind of comes back to this ongoing debate about trans teenagers in general, which, you know, Jesse Single has written some heavily criticized articles about this over the past few years. And like this idea that like the that there's no harm done if you don't transition and that that's the default and that there's something aberrant and also, you know, damaging about allowing teenagers to transition, you know, whereas isn't it either isn't it irreversible and potentially damaging either way? If you have a cisgender girl who starts watching these kinds of, you know, videos about fashion or whatever and maybe gets um eyebrow tattoos or gets, you know, some kind of permanent transformation to make themselves look more feminine. I mean, what I was getting at is more that puberty is irreversible in either direction. Like if you if you're, you know, in the middle of puberty and you don't take puberty blockers, then assign male at birth, you're going to grow facial hair. You're going to have all these physical changes that are going to be incredibly difficult and excruciating and expensive to try to reverse later. And if you're assigned female at birth, you're going to grow breasts, which mm-hmm. you're going to have to get top surgery to remove later. And like, there's a lot of changes that happen in adolescence that are irreversible, that if you just force people to go through adolescence in their assigned gender, it's going to be a lot harder later to deal with. Well, it was good enough for my generation to go through puberty. You'll go through puberty, too. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I think that you're right. I mean, this definitely plays into the kind of Jesse single uh, style. I, I would call it kind of fear mongering about the idea that there's this huge number of kids that are that are seeking attention by wanting hormones or hormone blockers. And it, the reality is it's an incredibly tiny number of people. And also there's really so much evidence now that not allowing a kid to have the kind of gender expression they want can be really harmful. There's there's tons of evidence for that. And it's funny because in this article about the rapid onset gender dysphoria by Lisa Littman, one of the things that she says is that these kids are doing this because they think it will make them happier. And that's a really suspicious thing. And it's like, but wait, isn't that the whole point? Like, we, if, if a kid thinks they'll be happier as a different gender or with a different gender presentation, like, that's the whole, that's what it means to go through adolescence. You try a bunch of identities to see what makes you happy. And there's a lot of ways that this can be finessed where, you know, instead of giving the kid what this paper calls cross-sex hormones, you can simply have puberty blockers. Like you said, you know, there's there's ways of kind of delaying that so that the kid can try on an identity and see if that fits, if indeed there is some question in the kid's mind. The other thing that this really made me think of a lot was how in the 19th century, all these male doctors invented the idea of hysteria, which was a disease that somehow only women suffered from. I mean, it emanated from their womb. Um, and it was basically just, you know, a name for a bunch of different symptoms that women had, mostly when they would get incredibly angry and freak out or they would have fainting fits or a lot of it had to do with rage. Uh, and this was, again, this was kind of the late 19th century. And there were a lot of reasons for women to be angry at that time. And the diagnosis and description and kind of propagation of the idea of hysteria was done by men, among men, for men, women were not consulted. (laughs) Nobody asked women like, so 
why are you pissed off? It was just, oh, well, it must be a terrible disease. And I feel like this study participates in that same kind of pathologizing of a group who isn't even consulted in the kind of in the generation of the name for this malady, right? Like this rapid onset gender dysphoria. Like, I don't understand why it would somehow ruin the study for this author to have consulted trans kids to ask them what they felt. Did did they feel like it's rapid onset? Did they feel like maybe they were brooding about it for two years and finally came out to their parents? You know, what was really going on? You know, the pathologizing language is part of what upsets me so much about this. And also this notion of peer pressure, like this idea that people are so kind of easily swayed that just hearing about other people's gender transitions is going to just suddenly make them be like, I'm going to do that too. That sounds fun. Wee! And like, it just seems weird, this idea that it's it's based on peer pressure. And I'm wondering what's the what's the mechanism by which that's supposed to happen? And why why is that peer pressure supposed to be so powerful? And also, yeah. Well, I mean, it's this idea of social contagion, which is a very well-accepted idea in, in sociology where it describes things like memes or transformations in political sentiment. I mean, it can describe a lot of things where we imitate behavior in people around us. And, and you know it happens. I mean, we've all been part of social contagion where you see people doing something. could be something really minor like wearing white sneakers and suddenly you're like desperate for a pair of white sneakers. Or it could be something like, like I said, changing your political point of view. So the idea in this study is that A lot of these kids who are transitioning are in social groups, according to their parents, because, again, this is all reported by parents. These kids are in social groups that have a higher number than average of trans kids in them. I I don't know that any teenager picks a group of friends (laughs) to have, like, a perfect representation of the population of the United States in them. Um, None of these parents seem to be freaking out about, like, the fact that their kids aren't hanging out with a racially diverse group of people. (laughs) They're really worried that it's not, you know, there's not enough cisgendered people in their child's um, playgroup or their, their friend group. And so the theory or the hypothesis in this paper is that because these kids have so many friends who are trans that they're kind of just imitating what they see in their friend group because they want to conform and they want the validation, which doesn't, again, doesn't take into account all of the literature and all of the kind of observations that we can make having all been teenagers that when you're a teenager, you seek out friends who are like you. And, you know, when I was a teenager, like it turned out that a bunch of my friends in high school were queer. One of them was trans, uh, later came out as trans. And, you know, that was because we were nerds and we were kind of gender weird and we sought each other out. And it wasn't it wasn't about conformity. It was just you want to be friends with people who understand you, you know. So I think that this study is a really great example of how, unfortunately, you know, science, as much as it's supposed to be objective and it's supposed to lead to enlightenment, can also be used to really shore up regressive uh, ideas. It can also be used to try to guide therapy for teens. I mean, that's one of the things that worries me about this study is that clinicians are going to read it. PLOS One is a very respected journal. It's not like it's been published in like, you know, Bob's Backyard Barbecue Journal. You know, this is a major, I've written about tons of papers that have been published there. They're going to take it seriously. Like people are going to start, clinicians are going to start saying, oh, I think that might be rapid onset gender dysphoria and not a true trans identity. And it's going to affect the lives of teenagers. This isn't a scientific paper that's about, 
you know, an ancient civilization or about how electrons behave, it's going to affect people's lives. And it's going to affect the lives of very, very vulnerable people, young people, trans people, non-binary people. That's a huge danger. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not a neutral kind of mistake to have made. Yeah. And just one final thought about the whole social contagion idea. I mean, before I knew that there were other trans people, which I can remember when I didn't really know that there were other trans people or that that was a thing that you could identify as, I was just really confused and didn't know what the hell was going on with me and just was like, I don't understand. This is really confusing and upsetting. And, you know, I feel like it's that way with a lot of things, like a lot of things until you find out that there's a name for it and that other people experience it and that you're not alone. You just might be on your own being really confused and isolated. And that I don't think that that's a good outcome. I don't think that's an outcome that we should push for, for people to just feel isolated and like they don't have any framework for understanding their own experiences. I don't think that that's like a win. I think that you're right. And I think one of the things that's really worrying about this paper is that it seems to pathologize the idea of a queer support network or a community, because it's not just about saying, you know, oh, these kids shouldn't be allowed to identify as trans. It's saying there's something pathological about queer kids wanting to just hang out together. And like you said, I mean, that's how people who have any kind of identity that's different from the mainstream find support and prevent themselves from being really depressed is to have friends they can share with. I mean, what if you're like, I don't know, like the only kid in town who likes to play (laughs) D&D, like I was, and then I found other kids to play with. And again, actually, when I was growing up, that was pathologized, like D&D was considered satanic in the town where I grew up, and kids did get in trouble for it. I guess that's just to say that Grownups often try to figure out ways to undermine communities of kids. But I think in this case, it's particularly pernicious because we know for sure that, like you said, the way that queer kids and trans kids learn about themselves and learn healthy role mo- learn about healthy role models is by having a community. And so this paper is saying, well, if your kid is seeking out communities of trans people, this is a sign that they probably aren't trans. <laughs> That's literally kind of the point of the paper. And so, you know, we're waiting to see, like I said, the the editors of PLOS are evaluating the paper. It's still available online. We're going to have a link to it in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. But I'm really hoping that they're going to issue some kind of statement or update about it and really condemn it for having poor research methods. I hope so, too. So on that cheery note... You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast which is about science fiction and science. Thanks so much for listening. Please sign up for the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Stitcher and wherever else you can find podcasts. And please leave a review if you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. Thanks so much to Women's Audio Mission for letting us record there. Thanks to Veronica Simonetti for production. And thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And we'll see you in two weeks. And by the way, it's new music. Yeah, new music. Woohoo! <laughs>